you're new to our Wednesday night meetings, what we're doing is an overview series where each Wednesday night we are overviewing an entire book of the Bible. Uh, we have to move pretty quickly in order to make that happen, but we're, we're for the most part, uh, able to do that. And I hope that this has been helpful for you at understanding where biblical books fall within the history of the Bible, thus far the history of the Old Testament. And, and one of the things that I hope comes from this series is that as you're going through your chronological Bible readings or your read the Bible through in a year programs or whatever your reading program is, when you come to a book like Lamentations, which is kind of obscure, you have now access to that book because you understand something of its context, its literary context, its historical context. I hope that you're gaining access to various biblical books in the process of this study. We looked last Wednesday night at the book of Jeremiah, and we stated there that the theme of Jeremiah is justice. Uh, justice foretold and to some extent justice served. If the theme of Jeremiah is justice, the theme of Lamentations is justice up close. Lamentations is just what it is described as being. It is a book of lament. There are five lament poems, funeral dirges. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 make up the five poems. And they're written by the prophet Jeremiah, the author of the book of Jeremiah, the prophet that God uses to forewarn of the coming of the Babylonians and the fall of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. Now in the midst of their being conquered by the Babylonian people, Nebuchadnezzar, and being carried away into exile, Jeremiah writes from the midst of that experience, lamenting, grieving, groaning, sorrowing over what he sees in his fellow countrymen. There are a couple of verses in the book of Lamentations that have stood out to me since the first time I read the book of Lamentations as sort of exclamation marks at how painful this experience must have been for the people of Jerusalem, the, the people of, of Judah, the Israelites. In chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible says, they cry out to their mothers, where is the grain and wine? as they faint like wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives fade away in the arms of their mothers. The, the picture here is of children who are crying out for the nourishment that was once abundant in the city of Jerusalem, once abundant in the promised land. They, they are, after all, in the capital city of a land that flows with milk and honey. And now here, under the judgment of God, at the hand of the Babylonian army, we have caring mothers bearing their children in the street who are dying of starvation before the eyes of Jeremiah the prophet. Chapter 4 and verse 10 is even more painful than that. This might be the most disturbing verse in the Bible. In chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible says, the hands of compassionate women. Now, Jeremiah is careful to note, th these are not bloodthirsty women. Th th these, these are are not even your run-of-the-mill women. But the hands of compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became their food during the destruction of my dear people. It would be practically impossible for me to overstate to you 
the depth of sorrow experienced by the people of Jerusalem during this season of Israel's history. Not only is there physical pain associated with the experiences of the exile, but there's real deep spiritual pain as well. Not only does the city falls, fall, but the temple crumbles as well. Jerusalem had been the holy city, the footstool of our Father who is in heaven, and the temple lies in shambles once the Babylonians pull out. They, they have been deported from the land. Many of the people, those who are not left behind to die of starvation and thirst, have been carried away into exile in Babylon. This is, this is as bad as it gets for the people of Israel. And for all of the, the embarrassing episodes in Israel's history in the Old Testament, if, if, you, if you ask an Israelite in Jesus' day or a Jew in our day, what, what, is the, what is the blot on Israel's biblical history? Even today, they would point you to the experience of exile and being carried away into Babylonian captivity under the hand of God's judgment. I said to you a moment ago that Lamentation, Lamentations is composed of five poems of lament. The chapters are composed of acrostics. And chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 have 22 verses because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If uh, in most of your translations, the alphabet is listed there within the text, like verse 1 of chapter 1. If you're on the first page of Lamentations, you have a funny looking little letter there. And then it says Aleph. And then above verse 2, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, Ket, Tet, Yod. This is the Hebrew alphabet. And so the way this works is each chapter is an acrostic and each verse, each stanza in each verse begins with that Hebrew letter. 22 verses in each chapter, one for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet, except for chapter 3, which is the middle chapter in the book of Lamentations. And in Hebrew poetry, it's not the beginning or the end that carry the main thrust of the message. It's always in the middle. Chapter 3 has three times as many verses as do the other chapters because it's a triple acrostic. So you have in uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 stanzas or, or, or lines that begin with Aleph. In verses 4, 5, and 6, lines that begin with Bet. So there's a lot of artistic or literary beauty about the book of Lamentations as well. If you're interested to learn your Hebrew alphabet, Lamentations is not a bad place to begin. We've seen some psalms um, in past studies that operated sort of the same way. There are essentially two major themes in the book of Lamentations, and we're going to look at some passages that teach us or support these themes. The first is justice and judgment, and the second is hope in the faithfulness of God. You'll notice in your outline that hope in the faithfulness of God is set in chapter 3, um, there in the middle of Lamentations, there is the promise of hope. Although there are some very painful experiences recounted in the book of Lamentation, at its apex, the thrust of Lamentations is to teach that even in the midst of despair, there is hope to be had in God, even when God has brought to bear the suffering that we find ourselves in the midst of. The God who is God over our suffering is the God of hope in the midst of our suffering. That is the discovery of, of Jeremiah. 
but you simply cannot look, in spite of the fact that the main thrust is hope in the faithfulness of God, you, you cannot neglect the theme of justice and judgment in chapters 1 and 2 and 4. We could even add chapter 5 to that where Jeremiah is praying for restoration. It would fit that theme or the context of justice and judgment as well. So what I want us to observe here is the way God moved against the people of Israel in judgment. Notice first that God removed his people from the land. Look at chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, how she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who is great among the nations has become like a widow. The princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She weeps aloud during the night with tears on her cheeks. There is no one to offer her comfort, not one from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. Just as the Old Testament speaks of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness as adultery, the imagery of adultery is prevalent in the book of Lamentations as well. Jerusalem is depicted as a woman crying out during the night with tears on her cheek. And there is no one to offer her comfort, not one from all her lovers. Her lovers are the various pagan religions that she has been enticed to uh, practice over the course of her history. And the friends that have forsaken her were what once were believed to be allies in neighboring nations. Her lovers and her friends have now forsaken her. She is left only to bear with the judgment of the true and living God against her, roaming among the nations but having no place to rest. God removed his people from the land. Now, I know that there's a lot of us who are new to this overview series, and, and even if there were not, no one remembers what I said last week, let alone weeks ago. But if you'll think back in our study of the Old Testament, we talked about in our study of the book of Deuteronomy how Deuteronomy controls so much of the conversation in the Old Testament. The theology of Deuteronomy is the theology of the prophets. And so what you see in Jeremiah's prophecy is the, the, it's an exposition of the book of Deuteronomy, which essentially says... If you're obedient, God will bless you. But if you are disobedient, God will curse you. And all of the Old Testament is in orbit around this notion. Even books like the book of Job is there as a corrective to a misunderstanding of that. To say obey and you'll be blessed by God is not the same as saying if you are blessed, you have been obedient to God. Nor is saying disobey and you'll be cursed the same as saying if you are cursed, you must have been disobedient to God. Job is written as a correction to that misrepresentation of Deuteronomy's theology. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God offers the blessings and the curses that will come as you read, and, and the highest penalty for Israel's unfaithfulness is removal from the land. Here, the people of Israel have received the most severe of punishments from God and that he has allowed that they be carried away captive from the land. Secondly, I want you to note that God took favor from the people. 
In verse 8 of chapter 1, the Bible says, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become an object of scorn. All who honored her now despise her, for they've seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Whereas once God had given the city of Jerusalem favor with neighboring nations. And what I, sometimes the language of favor gets picked up and co-opted for nefarious purposes. And I hear people talking about favor and God's favor in ways that are not biblical and really are kind of crazy. I'm, I'm not even talking, when I speak of favor, for the most part, I'm not even talking about God's favor toward us. I'm talking about the reality that one of God's blessing on, blessings on our lives as followers is when he gives us favor with other people. In other words, if I can put it just as plainly as I can, he makes people like us and, and, and calls us to live in such a way that our, our presence is endearing to others. God, God has charge over such things, you understand. I think I thought I think I've thought more about that over the last couple of years and praying about coming to be your pastor and then coming to be your pastor My prayer has been as it was for Stephen and like God give me favor with your people Simply put would you God would you be pleased to make them like me and help help me at the same time to have a deep and abiding a genuine love for them as well in the case of Israel God has turned the favor with neighboring nations off and they have become a byword to neighboring nations in his past. God holds the course of nations in his hand. And in times past, by his good providence, he has afforded Israel the privilege of holding favor in the eyes of neighbor, neighboring nations. But that favor has been removed. It's a, it's a natural thing. I'm inclined to draw parallels between Israel and America's experience. And, and like I totally get America's not Israel. Y'all write, write that down somewhere in the margin of your Bible and always remember that. But I don't think it's accidental that as we have slid further and further toward the direction of calling what is good evil and what is evil good, that our status in the world has declined at the same time. That whereas we were once a nation that was celebrated in the world as the world's great superpower, now most everywhere America is a byword and we are deeply hated by people in the East and the West and the North and the South. God took favor from the people of Israel as an act of judgment against them. Thirdly, in verse number 10, God took their possessions away. The Bible says the adversary has seized all her precious belongings. She has even seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those you'd forbidden to enter your assembly. All their stuff was taken away. All their stuff was taken away. Judah had enjoyed a, a season of great prosperity. In fact, if you remember last week as we looked at Jeremiah, one of, the, one of the challenges of Jeremiah's ministry was convincing a fat and happy people that judgment could come. They're looking around and saying, brother, this doesn't look like judgment to me. It's, it, we're, we're, we, we are faced with the same conflict in our culture where we are so well provided for. We live lives of affluence and great comfort. And it's difficult to convince anyone here that God's judgment could ever come against them. But in an instant, God swore thing. 
God removed his hand of protection. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. How the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his anger. He has thrown down Israel's glory from heaven to earth. He has abandoned his footstool in the day of his anger. It's common language to speak of the earth as God's footstool, Jerusalem as his throne. Jesus uses that language in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in the weeks ahead in our Sunday morning series. What this verse indicates is that God's hand of protection has been removed from the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. I, I, don't, I, I wish we thought more clearly in spiritual terms about what we enjoy as a people and the course of history. I'm so thankful for men and women who serve faithfully in armed forces over the course of the history of, of our country and the advancements in technology and various other things that have provided for, in a material sense, the protections that we've enjoyed and the liberty that we have at the present hour. But it, it really has never been jets and battleships and honorable, brave men and women that have provided at the end of the day, ultimately, for our protection. It has been the hand of God protecting and guarding and watching over. And here in an act of judgment against the city of Jerusalem, God withdraws the hand of protection. He says, you want it and you got it. Turn them over to the consequences of their own dreadful decisions and injustices. Here's the fifth thing. God removed his presence. Now, even as I say that, I, I, I suspect that eyebrows are raised and curiosity is piqued because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But that's, that's not the kind of presence that I'm, I'm talking about. The glory of God had been pleased to dwell over the city of Jerusalem. When Solomon prays the prayer of dedication over the temple, the glory of God in a manifest way descends over the temple and God was pleased to dwell there. The book of Ezekiel, another of the Old Testament prophets that speaks of this season of exile, shares a vision where the glory of God exits the temple. The glory of God gets up and leaves the temple and leaves the city of Jerusalem. The presence of God is withdrawn. Look to chapter 2 and verse number 6. The Bible says he's done violence to his temple as if it were a garden booth destroying his place of meeting. The Lord has abolished appointed festivals and Sabbaths in Zion. He has despised king and priest in his fierce anger. The taking away of that temple maximizes the hurt and the anguish that the Israelite would have associated with this season in their history. That temple in their mind represented the presence of God in their midst. And not only was the presence of God withdrawn, but the house of God in a literal sense. I know we use all that language in this New Testament context and we talk about the Lord's house and we, we use that language with regards to, we're, we're talking about something that, that far exceeds even our more elevated ideas of church buildings and structures and places where we meet. I'm talking about the temple where the very real presence of God's glory in the midst of the people dwelt. God removed his presence from the people. 
God went away from the people of Jerusalem. God removed himself. From time to time, I get pulled into a conversation about the new heaven and paradise and Hades and Gehenna and varying levels of judgment and what is to come in a new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. Where are we after we die and all those sorts of things. And there is something to be said for understanding the picture the New Testament paints of our post-death experience. But in the simplest of terms, heaven is where Jesus is and hell is where Jesus is not. And here what we have described of the city of Jerusalem is a place where Jesus is not. He withdraws his presence. And in the aftermath is this hellish experience that we read of in the book of Lamentations. Here's the next thing. God turns the nations against them. In chapter 2 and verse 22, the Bible says, I can find my place. You summon my attackers on every side, as if for an appointed festival day. On the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. My enemy has destroyed those I nurtured and reared. I suppose we could have collapsed these two consequences of God's judgment against them into one. The idea of God's removing favor with the nations from the people of Israel, and now they're surrounding them. Jeremiah could have reflected on the festival days he mentions here in verse 22 when all the people of Israel would have descended from the mountains and would have come from uh, Dan to Beersheba to the city of Jerusalem to participate in the celebration of whatever feast was to be celebrated on that given day. And now he sees enemy nations descending on the city in that manner. Like the crowds would gather for Passover, like the crowds would gather for the Feast of Tabernacles, like the crowds would gather for Pentecost, like the crowds would, would gather for the feast days, they now descend on the city to carry away her goods and her people captive. God removed, or turned rather, the nations against them. And then lastly, God turned them against one another. Look at chapter 4 and verse number 3. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young. But my dear people have become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. How, how many of you know that some sin doesn't just bring the consequence of judgment. Some sin is the judgment. And there comes a point in time at which cruelty one to another, the kind of Hatred, the kind of animus and vitriol, the kind of just meanness that we see in our culture, it's not just worthy of judgment. On some level, it is the judgment. And until there's a real repentance of our sin, that kind of animosity will always carry us along. We'll always be inclined toward that kind of spirit. And if there's a people in this world that in the midst of all of this hostility would be at peace and still and peacemakers and lovers of all people, all things to all people as much as is possible that we might win the more, it ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. God turned them against one another. Both justice and judgment is served in the city of Jerusalem. But thankfully, that's not all that Lamentations has to say. The second major theme is, as we've said, hope. 
in the faithfulness of God. This is the best known passage in the book of Lamentations by far. Look at verses 18 through 33. The Bible says, Jeremiah, after recounting so much of what he had experienced, then I thought, my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. It's a reasonable conclusion to come to given what he'd experienced. But he says in verse 19, calling out to God, remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love or mercy, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I say to myself, Jeremiah says, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is still young. Let him sit alone and be silent, for God has disciplined him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is still hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with shame, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to his abundant, faithful love, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. That, that verse, as it reads in the King James, great is thy faithfulness. It carries far more meaning than what we could investigate in the brief time that we have together this evening. What I would say to you as plainly as the text itself says is that God is faithful. And I mean he is faithful. I, I was unfortunate to learn early in my life that even the people that I love the most could be unfaithful to me. And then I learned a little later in life that not only was that heartbreaking truth a reality, but moreover, I could be unfaithful to the people I loved the most. We might observe generally that mankind is just unfaithful. If you think hard, you can probably remember, I've been reading a work of fiction where this man comes to discover fault in his father's background. His father was on a pedestal in his mind, and now as a middle-aged man, he uncovers some dark truths from his father's past. You, you might remember when you learned for the first time that your mama and daddy were not perfect, and how unsettling that was. The, the people that you thought to be your strength and stay had fault in their, in their life. You'll never make that discovery about our God who is in heaven. When, when you're on the shakiest of ground, when your world is crashing down and you don't know where to turn, God will always be our strength and stay. In him there is no variation, there is no shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he is steady and he is stable, a rock upon which we can build our home and not worry about wind and wave beating upon it. He is faithful. 
Jeremiah, standing in the midst of Jerusalem's rubble, observes, because of the Lord's mercy, we're not destroyed. His mercy is new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness toward us. I, I don't understand the psychology of wagging the finger in the face of God in the midst of despair. I don't have to understand it to know that that's a real part of many people's experience. But if there's ever a time when we ought to know that God is faithful, at ever a time when we need to cling to the reality that God is faithful, it's when everything is crashing down around us. Jeremiah sees this despairing people and the destruction that this army has left in its wake and reflects on the faithfulness of God. In Jeremiah's response to the judgment of God that's come against them, he first realizes that his hope remains in God and in God alone. Secondly, he rests in the faithfulness of God. There's something that stills my soul when I reflect on the steady hand of God in my life. Maybe your life has been more even killed than mine has and there are other attributes of God's character that appeal to you more there, there are two attributes of God's character that I reflect on more than any other that bring me such peace and, and Settle me down and give me such confidence his faithfulness his steadiness and his sovereignty over all things I think as men, there's something that appeals to us about acknowledging the power that God has over all things. There's a, a helpless feeling about not being able to control certain circumstances and to know that my God in heaven is Lord over all things, that he is absolutely sovereign over everything. From the highest height to the deepest depths, he is Lord and he never takes a break. When I go to sleep at night, God does not. He is absolutely Lord over my life and this reality that he is faithful, he is steady, he is strong. He will never leave me nor forsake me. There's cause for hope and encouragement in that. Thirdly, he acknowledges, listen, this is so good. Jeremiah acknowledges the suitability of the judgment. I, 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 want, you to, I want you to listen again at what is said here. Verse 26 it's good to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. It's good for a man to bear the yoke while he's still young. Let him sit alone and be silent, for God has disciplined him. You know what Jeremiah's doing? Jeremiah's doing what you tell your children to do when they get in trouble and you want them to go to their room and think about what they've done. It's good for a man to sit alone and be quiet, to bear the yoke in his youth, to reflect silently on the discipline that's come against him. He says in verse 29, let him put his mouth to the dust. Perhaps there is still hope. In other words, put his face on the ground before God and cry out that God would bring relief from the judgment that has come. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with shame. Let him offer his cheek. If he deserves it, let him, let him take it. He acknowledges the suitability of the judgment that's come against this land and even the judgment that has touched his own life personally when it comes to my children the same is true with adults and the same is true with everybody else's children the most concerning response to failure I'm more I'm far more concerned it's it doesn't bother me as much maybe that's the better way of putting it when my children mess up right because they they just do they're just kids and we're human and sometimes they mess up badly what really troubles me is when they mess up and then they make excuses. 
And, and frankly, when it comes to shepherding the church as a pastor, I'm not sh there's, there is nothing you could walk into my office tomorrow and say, Brother Wade, I need, I need to tell you this is what I've done. You, there is nothing you could say that would surprise me. In 15 years of ministry, I have heard them all, trust me. What burdens me, what troubles me, what makes me fear for the souls of men is when they trifle with sin and then make excuses for the things that they've done. Jeremiah acknowledges that the consequences that he and the people are bearing with are a suitable judgment given the injustices that they've performed. It's going to be hard for you to receive the free gift of forgiveness, Father, that you have sinned against heaven and you deserve the judgment that is due you. That's a, just a part of what it means to come faithfully or to come humbly to the cross. Fourthly, Jeremiah is reminded of the character of God. Look at verses 31 through 33. He reflects here, for the Lord will not reject us forever. <laughs> he might reject us for a long time, Jeremiah says, but the Lord won't reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to his abundant faithful love, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. There is a passage in Ezekiel that speaks of the delight that God takes in bringing judgment against mankind. There, there is a, and I raise that because someone will point to that verse and say, what about this? There is a sense in which we ought to delight as justice is served because what is right has been performed. But God is not a bloodthirsty God taking great delight in cutting down men. In fact, in his great patience and long suffering, he has withheld his wrath that every last lost sheep would be brought into the sheepfold in great grace and, and mercy. Can you imagine the divine restraint required as God looks down at creation and observes all manner of ungodliness? Even as those who perform acts of ungodliness shake their fist and wag their finger at, at God. The kind of restraint that that must, must require can you imagine Jesus on the cross with nails in his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, and looking out across a multitude of people who mocked and scorned him, who, who had been complicit in his crucifixion? They had cried out for, they had lobbied for his death. And for him to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, I would not have responded that way. And neither would you. But praise the Lord, God is not like us. He is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. And even when the judgment comes against us, when the suffering comes at the hand of a good and faithful God, there is the love and the mercy and the compassion of a God who always does what is right by his children. Aren't you glad for that? Would you join me in going to him in prayer? Father, thank you that you are who you are. Thank you that you're not like us, that you are perfect in all your ways, that you love us so well and lead us along, God, in spite of our stubbornness. God, I pray as we reflect on 
the, the working out of justice and judgment for your people in ages past, that you would guard us against their error. Lord, that we would rest not in material wealth, that, that, that we wouldn't find shelter in religious institutions and the ways that we've insulated ourselves from the things around us. God, I, I pray that we would not even shelter ourselves in our perceived self-righteousness, but that we take our shelter in your only begotten Son, under his blood, be accounted as righteous, and escape the judgment that is to come, a judgment that is far greater than anything experienced in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. God, thank you that we have been kept from your wrath to come through your perfect son. God, I, I pray for anyone here who's not trusted and believed on Jesus for grace and for mercy. Might they come to see that he is good and faithful. Might they find shelter under his blood. In Christ's name, amen.